you turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And I'll pray for us as you find that text. Our Father, we thank you so much that your mercy is more. Your mercy is greater. We can never outsin your grace. We thank you and we praise you for our salvation, which has been wrought in Christ and bought by Christ. We love you and we thank you. We pray, Lord, that you would even now open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law, in your word, that we might become more and more like Christ and that we might enjoy the hope that is so richly ours in Christ. And we pray that we would have attentive minds and hearts that change and become more and more godly with each passing day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, the concept that we've been building in the past number of weeks here is so vital to us as believers in Christ, so important, so key. It is that sometimes elusive pathway to living a life that really accurately reflects what it means to be a Christian. And that concept we've been building, of course, is the triumphant Christian life. The triumphant Christian life can be elusive, but it really doesn't have to be. It can seem mysterious, but really it's right in front of us. And to build this theology of a triumphant Christian life, we've been looking at the final teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples on earth in John chapters 13 and 14. And in these texts, we've been mining these very rich truths which really glue themselves directly to our walk with the Lord. These are extremely practical, extremely day-to-day centered because these truths teach us how to live triumphantly, how to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, teaching us to live the triumphant Christian life even as the Lord Jesus was teaching his disciples to do the same. And the reason we can say that the triumphant Christian life is not elusive, that it's not mysterious, is because it simply consists of filling your life with certain elements which the Lord Jesus himself has given to us. God isn't trying to keep the triumphant Christian life a secret from us. You, you probably know this about me. I don't like Christian books that have the, the, the word secret in the title because it's not a secret. Just open your Bibles. He's not trying to restrict this idea to a few elite believers This is something that he desires for every one of you, and it's right before us. There's no secret formula here. It's just before us in terms of elements. And so if we, by the power of the Holy Spirit and obedience to the Word of God, if we simply fill our lives with these elements, then our lives begin to reflect what the Lord Jesus would have us to have as followers of Christ. Now, the elements that we saw in John 13 of the triumphant Christian life, we saw that it is a confession-filled life, it is a humility-filled life, it is a gratitude-filled life, it is a church-filled life, and it's a submission-filled life. These are just elements that we're filling our lives with to live triumphantly. 
And today we'd like to consider a hope-filled life, a life filled with hope. And we're not going to talk about just hope in general this morning. This is a specific hope which one-third of the Bible concerns itself with, the hope that's not about my emotions, not about my experiences, not about my expectations, not about what's happening at this very, very moment. This is hope that is only uniquely the Christian's hope. It's hope that transcends the now and looks squarely at the later. This is hope based on a growing understanding and a more intentional thoughtfulness and a focus upon God's future promises, his future plan. This is what theologians sometimes call eschatological hope or prophetic hope, eschatology, just the study of the end times the study of the consummation of God's kingdom plan. And that's the hope that's presented to us in our text this morning by the Lord Jesus himself. One of the most beloved and I think clung to passages in all of our Bible. Jesus is with the disciples in the upper room just hours now before his arrest, before his crucifixion. They're still confused about his actual mission on earth. They still don't fully grasp what he's doing At least three times in the recent months, he's told them that he will die for the sins of all who would believe, and then he would be resurrected. And on every one of those occasions, the disciples demonstrated without a shadow of a doubt that they had no clue what he was talking about. They were still expecting Jesus to bring the kingdom of God immediately. There was to be a visible kingdom of God on earth. That's what they thought was happening right now. And so now he pointedly tells them that's not happening now. That's going to happen later, but not now. And he's going to tell them, I'm leaving. I'm departing this earth. But in this text, he gives what is really ultimately the Christian's hope and dream, that he will take us to where he is. That's our hope. Now, before we dive into the text in depth, I want to just form some thoughts in your mind about eschatology, about the end times, about prophecy, just to help you kind of think properly in these terms. And to do this, I just want to give you four key words that we'll kind of key off of here. And this is just to get our minds going in the right direction to properly understand John 14. The first key word, Bible. Bible. We must reject the notion that we interpret Scripture, particularly when it comes to the end times or really any area of theology, but we must reject the notion that we interpret Scripture through the lens, through the filter of any theological system. This places a theological system as an authority over and above the Bible. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Calvinism, Arminianism, covenant theology, dispensational theology, all of which have significant overlaps, by the way, or you could even enter into the realm of unorthodox or heretical theology, such as Catholic theology, liberalism, neo-orthodoxy, liberal theology. Those systems bear very little resemblance to what the Bible actually says. But no theological system gets to have the privilege of interpreting the Bible. No theological system gets to do that. Now, We do call ourselves dispensational. You can read our doctrinal statement. But we would also add that dispensational has about three major emphases that include, by the way, the bedrock of how we are to interpret Scripture. It's not that we interpret Scripture as dispensationalists because we're dispensationalists. We interpret Scripture as dispensationalists because Scripture leads us to those conclusions. 
Let me give you these three bedrock ideas that, that we withhold to. First of all, God's overall purpose on earth is not to save humanity from their sins. That's not his overall purpose. His primary purpose on earth is to glorify himself. And saving humanity from their sins happens to be the way he's chosen to do that. So we would have what you call a doxological approach to the Bible. That God's ultimate purpose is his own glory. And we can, we can make that case very strongly. The second kind of bedrock idea that we withhold to is we maintain a clear distinction between the church and Israel for the simple reason that the Bible maintains that clear distinction beginning to end. And finally, we hold, and this is, this is really the key here, we hold to the consistent use of a plain, normal, literal, grammatical, historical, literary method of interpreting the Bible. A scholar by the name of Dr. Paul Shockley, he says it extremely well. He says this, quote, Fundamental and unique to dispensationalism is the belief, he says unique to dispensationalism, I would agree with that, Fundamental and unique to dispensationalism is the belief that they consistently seek, listen to this, to give each word the same meaning it would have in its normal usage. It is also known as plain interpretation because we recognize symbols, figures of speech, and types. These are interpreted plainly in order to communicate their intended meaning to the reader. In other words, symbols, figures of speech, and types are normal literary tools that are used to clarify or emphasize thoughts and ideas. Literal, plain, or normative interpretation results in accepting the text of Scripture at its face value. In other words, like every other area of theology, in times, everything what we believe must stand the test of all of the Bible, not just our theological system. For example, when considering the idea of the millennium, and this is the idea that Christ will rule physically on earth prior to the establishment of the final state, prior to the judgment of all the lost, prior to the reward of all the saved, the ultimate reward, prior to the new heavens and the new earth, Various viewpoints have historically been put forward, and I don't give these to you to, to teach them to you, but just to give you an example of interpretation. Amillennialism is the belief that Christ will not establish an intermediate physical kingdom on earth prior to the final state of the new heavens and new earth. Some would say that the kingdom of God is happening right now and will simply transition instantly to the final state at the coming of Christ. And, and we love our amillennial brothers and sisters, but in all love, we also say that this is not based primarily on the simple observation of the text of Scripture. It's based on an ideal. It's based on an ideology that the kingdom of God is primarily spiritual and we denigrate the physical. Thus, it's based on a framework, not the observation of the text of Scripture. Postmillennialism. The belief that Christ will come will come to reign physically on earth, but not until after the church has established the kingdom. This is, again, not based primarily on the simple observation of the preponderance of Scripture. It's based on the ideal. It's based on an idealistic idea that the church will be the mechanism to change the world and to prepare it for Christ's return. And now this makes the gospel not just about changing hearts, but about changing laws, changing social systems. And so you should give to your church and you should give to your local social service agency as well. But again, 
It's based on the presupposition that the church's role in the world is to change the world. And that's not, in fact, the case. It's not based on the observation of the text. Premillennialism, the belief that Christ will reign uh, physically on earth, will judge his enemies on earth, and will set up an intermediate kingdom, this is not based on a theological system. This is not based on a presupposition. This is not based on assumptions. It's based on the overwhelming evidence of the consistent observation of Scripture, letting the Bible speak for itself and bowing to the conclusion to which Scripture leads us. I, I've been very, very blessed in this in the, as I started studying the end times as a, as a teenager. And I started taking notes in a blue notebook and writing things down from Daniel chapter 9 and Zechariah chapter 14 and, and the entire book of Revelation. I came to some conclusions from reading my Bible with a pen and a notebook. And one of those conclusions is that there is going to be a seven-year period called the Great Tribulation, and right before that, Jesus is going to rapture the church, and right after that, he's going to return and judge the earth. And then I visited a church, and the pastor preached a sermon called, What is Dispensationalism? I had never heard the word before. And he went through, What is Dispensationalism? And I said, Oh, I'm a dispensationalist. Because I simply observed the text of Scripture. And many, many others have had that same experience. Listen, theology and theologians are not our authority. The Bible is our sole source of truth about God. Because theology is fallible. Theologians are fallible. The Bible is not fallible. It is infallible. So if the preponderance of Scripture clearly demonstrates something which disagrees with your theological system, then you're faced with the choice of elevating Scripture or elevating your system. Guess what most people choose? Elevate the system. Here's a second key word to consider prophecy, the word gospel. Gospel. You are a sinner. You have violated the holy purity of God. God was furious with you because of your sin. Your sin was such an egregious offense against the righteousness of God, that the wages of sin is death. Not just a one-time physical death, but a death which is living and conscious and aware, a torment of the soul for all of eternity. And whether you think that's just or unjust is, frankly, laughable. Because our little puny opinions concerning the God who created the stars and the planets is inconsequential. But because God so loved the world meaning all whom he would bring to faith in himself. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to stand in our place and face the rightful wrath of God against sin on our behalf. And then at the death of Christ on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be credited with the righteousness of Christ because now in Christ the righteous indignation and the full furious wrath of God has been completely emptied onto him. And there's no wrath left for you. There's no more judgment left for you. And we love the gospel, but the gospel must necessarily be connected to prophecy. It must be connected to the future. Why? I don't know if you've looked in the mirror lately, but I have. I'm still dying. I still live in a sinful body. I still live in a sinful world. The kingdom of God has not come. Sure hasn't come in my life. The kingdom of God is not here. My body is not regenerated. I'm not with the Lord. I don't talk to the Lord. I pray. 
prayer is something you do by faith because there's distance between this. I don't talk face to face with God. I must pray by faith. We still face the consequences of the fact that we're fallen creatures in a fallen creation. And so the gospel must be connected to a full consummation of salvation, to a day when we behold God and are in full and sinless and perfected union with him in the same way Adam and Eve walked physically with God in the Garden of Eden. Paul makes a very clear connection in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. He said, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Listen to this. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean, to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus himself explained. In his prayer in John 17, he prays that all who belong to him might see his glory, the glory he had before the foundation of the world, to see Christ in all his magnificence and all his splendor. So the gospel without eschatology is in many ways an incomplete gospel. Somebody coming to faith in Christ after having received the gospel has every right and should ask this question, what happens now? That's our next question. And so we have Bible, we have gospel. Let me give you a third key word to help our understanding of eschatology. Third key word, obedience. Obedience. Thinking about eschatology is not just a dry, dusty theological debate which has no bearing on my life right now. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 of our glorious future inheritance because of salvation in Christ. He says in verse 4 of chapter 1, he speaks of your, quote, inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And what's the result of our knowledge of these glories that are to come? 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's his coming. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Greek, behavior. In other words, we live now in light of the coming glory. There is a sense of getting ready, not that we're saving ourselves, but that we're readying ourselves to meet Christ. 1 John 3, 2 and 3, beloved, we are God's children now, meaning salvation is secure, that is done, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. After Paul's 1 Corinthians 15 declaration of our coming victory over death, and after proclaiming, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He tells us what our response to that knowledge is. And what's our response to knowing that our future is secured? Verse 58 Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so our obedience is based on our future hope. Let me give you one final key word, and that is encouragement. Encouragement. The study of the end times is meant to 
It's not meant to fill our brains with knowledge. That's the first step, but it's meant to encourage our hearts, to motivate us to great faith and trust in the Lord. It's meant to stir us up. After giving spectacular detail concerning the Christian's future, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, Literally in Greek, urge one another, exhort one another with these words. Man, I'm just having the worst week ever. Hey, Christ is returning soon. It could be today. Man, I'm not sure if my marriage is going to make it. I know, and I don't know either, but I know that you're going to make it and that Christ is coming. Eschatology, in many ways, is our answer to every problem. It's how we encourage one another. And that theme of encouragement, that's what we want to key in on because that was Jesus' theme here in John 14, to give encouragement, to give hope, to give comfort. But this isn't shallow hope. This isn't the surface hope that says Jesus is your best friend and will make your today better, sort of a pep talk. Because what if your today consists of chemotherapy? What if your today is the devastating loss of a child? What if your today is the agony of heartbreaking disappointment? What if your today is the struggle against a body that doesn't work right? What if that's your today? You cannot reduce Christian hope to an emotion in the here and now. Ultimately, Christian hope is based in the glorious future. And now, armed with that knowledge, you can face anything. You can face anything. Now, our Christian hope is built on promises. Promises which transcend this life, which surpass earthly concerns. Promises which have caused countless millions of believers in Christ on their deathbeds to literally be exuberant with hope. You know how exciting it is to me to hold the hand of a dying believer in Christ in the hospital and through breathing machines and other things that they have to endure to see the smile on the face when he or she says, I'm, I'm going, I'm almost there because of their exuberance. These are promises that are untouchable. No one can threaten to take them away. And for the believer in the Lord Jesus, they're certain in their firm guarantees. And so now with our minds really geared toward the future and thinking properly about eschatology, I want to have us consider three of those promises which give us hope. Three of those promises which give us hope. The first promise, Jesus has secured your reservation in heaven. Jesus has secured your reservation in heaven. Jesus gives immediate comfort to his disciples with such tender and simple words. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. When he says, let not your hearts be troubled, it's a word that means to be disturbed, to be stirred up emotionally, to be anxious. What Jesus is about to tell them is meant to have a a calming effect on them. It's meant to bring tranquility. It's meant to bring a a spiritual sense of, of relaxation. And now Jesus is about to open the doors of heaven to give a little glimpse into their future. Verse two, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? What a tantalizing description. He calls where he's going, my father's house. This is personal. This is something that he's, he's welcome to, and he's about to say that you'll be welcome to this as well. My father's house. This is the place where God makes his dwelling. Now we know 
that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. But he does have an official dwelling place, an official home, what Scripture often calls heaven. The disciples would have known something about this dwelling place from the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 1 describes God's throne room in heaven, brilliant angels flying around with the sound of a mighty waterfall, an expanse above them that looked like crystal, above the expanse a throne of sapphire, precious metals shining like fire, rainbows of colors everywhere. Ezekiel one twenty eight says, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. I think the main thing we have to grasp about my father's house, about heaven, is that it is a real physical place with real physical things. It's not a, a ghostly, weird existence that seems more frightening than exciting. In fact, if we surveyed the Bible, we would find that heaven, as it is right now, contains thrones, scrolls, people with faces, people with clothes, people with palm branches in their hands, trees, musical instruments, animals, a temple of God, angels, an altar, smoke, fire, rainbows, elders who sit on thrones, the thrones that they sit on. You might make the case that some of those things are symbolic, but that doesn't mean that they're not physical. My wedding ring is symbolic, but it's still a physical thing. And by the way, there's one physical feature of heaven that cannot be explained away, cannot be made into some sort of allegory. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven physically and physically sits at the right hand of the Father, even as we speak. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. In other words, his location was important. We're speaking to our God who dwells in a place of infinite splendor and color and depth and majesty and beauty and holiness and all the other descriptors we could assign to heaven. And Jesus says that in my Father's house are many rooms, many rooms. Now, unfortunately, the traditional translation of many rooms comes from the 4th century Latin version of the Bible, which translated the Greek word mane to the Latin mansiones, where we get mansions, right? And how many of you here have heard a sermon about the great mansions that we'll receive in heaven? I, I heard them the whole time I was growing up. And, and what do you picture when you picture a mansion? These big castle-like structures all over the place. That sounds wonderful and it preaches well, but that's not the right translation. The better translation is just rooms. And you say, well, rooms, that's much less exciting than mansions. <laughs> I'd rather have a mansion than a room. I mean, you get sent to your room, Right? <laughs> Well, this is important. This would have been a very familiar picture to those listening to Jesus. In the ancient Near East, they didn't follow our somewhat weird custom of raising children then basically kicking them out of the house when they're 18. A patriarch, the oldest head of a family, was also the head of the family business, a vineyard or, or, or some other sort of ancient agricultural business in which his sons would expect to have a share in this business as adults. And as his sons would grow up and marry, each son would simply build an addition onto his father's house in which he would bring his new wife and their eventual children. They would build courtyards and paths and gardens. They would dig more wells. It would just grow and grow and grow. And if you asked one of the sons, where do you live? He would say with great pride, I live in my father's house. Because to not live in my father's house means you're a prodigal means that you're out. And so it was with great pride that 
I lived in my father's house. Jesus isn't describing these rooms in all their splendor. He's not, he's not, that's not his point. He's making the point that you already have a room that God has already built on for you, that you have a reservation. Paul said it this way in Colossians 3, 3 and 4, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's set. It's there. There is a room, so to speak, with your name on it already. By the way, Jesus has already prayed to his Father to secure your reservation. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that wonderful? The first promise, Jesus has secured your your reservation in heaven. He secured your reservation in heaven. Second promise. Jesus delights in your arrival to heaven. Jesus delights in your arrival to heaven. Verse 2. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Apparently, he's already told them this. Apparently, he's had this talk before, and now he's having a, a serious final version of it. The Old Testament predicted a Messiah, a great leader, And this great leader would be sent by God to defeat the enemies of Israel. But what Israel didn't understand, what Jesus' disciples still didn't understand, was before all of that glorious ruling happens, the Messiah, the Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ would have to defeat the first enemy. And the first enemy that had to be defeated was sin. And that would happen humbly and cruelly and painfully on the cross. The disciples expected that Jesus was going to seize power miraculously, get rid of the Roman occupation, put them in high positions, and establish his kingdom on earth. But now he's been saying in recent days that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to be raised from the dead, and then he's going to leave them. So Jesus is reassuring them. He's saying, I I told you that I'm going away to prepare a place for you. This is assurance. This is comfort. It's a promise for a future reunion that, yes, we'll be separated, but not forever. We will be together again. And this is a declaration we need. We have to have this declaration. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, he's made a pronouncement. And this pronouncement is from one who has survived death and been resurrected. He alone has the power. He alone has the authority. He alone has the dominion to make this pronouncement. And the pronouncement says, if I have invited you, I will make sure to get you there. I will make sure to get you there. And he says a second time in verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, speaking of his ascension into heaven, which would happen 40 days after his resurrection, he's going to prepare a place. Now, traditionally, this has been understood as the idea of construction, that Jesus is literally creating or constructing a home for us in heaven. And you may have heard it preached, it takes six months to build a house on earth. Can you imagine how great it's going to be after Jesus has taken 2,000 years to build our house? And that, again, preaches really well, but that doesn't reflect the truth here. Some feel that Jesus is speaking of the construction of New Jerusalem, that grand central city described both in Isaiah and in Revelation. But New Jerusalem is pictured in Revelation 21 as being brand new and unused. 
So it probably can't be New Jerusalem, and it can't be new construction. It can't be that Jesus is literally making something. Why? Because the structure, grammatically and syntactically, of these clauses means that place and many rooms are the same thing. The many rooms are already there. In my Father's house are many rooms. They're there, and I go to prepare a place. So it's not the idea of building a place. It's the idea of getting a place ready, of getting it ready. This is what you do when you prepare your home for honored guests. You don't tell somebody, would you like to come to my house in six months because I need to build it first before you come here. You say, would you like to come to my house next Tuesday and I'm going to prepare. Things like preparing a meal, maybe even putting up decorations, getting dressed up. This is the sense of preparation that Jesus is speaking of. We know of at least three preparations that are happening for our arrival in heaven. Things that are getting prepared. First preparation, rewards. Rewards. We know that believers in Christ will be rewarded for their service to Christ. Revelation 4 pictures these rewards as golden crowns. 1 Corinthians 3.14 says that the faithful believer will receive a reward. Luke 19 tells us that Jesus will reward believers. So we could expect certain preparations for what will go down in history as the most incredible award ceremony of all time. Preparing rewards. He's also preparing a banquet. A banquet. The church known as the bride of Christ. Revelation 19.6 speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. A, a massive celebration that the Lamb of God slain to produce a people for himself will be united with that people. Massive celebration. So there's rewards being prepared, a banquet being prepared. But the last thing being prepared is, is Jesus. Is Jesus. As long as Jesus is still on earth, the place is not fully prepared. The host must be home to welcome the new residents. You don't invite somebody to your house for dinner and say, the key's under the mat, help yourself to whatever's in the fridge. You're there. And so the preparation, I go away to prepare a place for you with rewards, with a banquet, and himself. What a loving and kind promise, a, a prepared place awaiting your arrival. Don't be misled by the wrong notion that somehow God with sort of a sigh and a roll of the eyes, is going to hesitatingly let you into heaven if he must. There's a preparation happening for your arrival because Jesus Christ delights in your arrival. First promise, Jesus has secured your reservation in heaven. Second promise, Jesus delights in your arrival to heaven. Third promise, Jesus has arranged transportation to heaven. He has arranged transportation to heaven Okay, this is all well and good. Small problem about going to heaven. How do I get there? How do I get there? And I don't mean, well, trust Christ as your Savior. I, I mean, literally, how do I get there? The end of verse 3, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Now, what precisely is Jesus speaking of here? And, and we find ourselves jumping onto a theological landmine all of a sudden here. Well, some feel that Jesus is speaking metaphorically of his upcoming resurrection, that because of his resurrection, he's now prepared the way to have right standing with God. That is true theologically. It's not what this text is saying, however. Others feel this is just generally speaking of, 
of what theologians call the parousia. That's just from a Greek word that means the presence or the being alongside. Parousia just speaks of all the things that encompass the end times, everything all around the coming of Messiah. Others feel that this is speaking of the taking up of the living church, known as the rapture, lumped in with the death of believers who are then taken to heaven, that that it's all-inclusive, any and every mode of transportation to heaven. Still others limit this to speaking only of the rapture, which coincides with the resurrection of saints who have already died, according to 1 Thessalonians 4. And yet others spiritualize this and believe that Jesus is referring to his spiritual return by means of the coming Holy Spirit in the days to come. So which is it? Well, it can't be speaking of his resurrection. That's not what the context is. And Jesus was never uh, bashful about speaking of his resurrection. He openly said it, that I will die and I will be raised. He, he, didn't, he didn't beat around the bush. Can't be speaking of the resurrection. It's not the context. It can't be speaking generally of the entire parousia, the entirety of all that makes up the end times. Jesus' statement here is extremely detailed, extremely focused. He's coming to take the disciples back to where he is, to the place of many rooms. That doesn't include all the other events of the end times. It can't be the rapture and the death of the believer in Christ, all in one all-inclusive package. Jesus isn't giving comfort about what happens when you die. He's giving comfort about what's going to happen after he dies. And then after he's raised and after he departs. And by the way, the Bible never speaks of the Lord coming to take the deceased believer to heaven. When Stephen was being stoned to death in Acts 7, he saw Christ waiting for him, not coming to him. It can't be the spiritual return of Jesus Christ in the coming of the Holy Spirit. In the same chapter, Jesus will be extremely detailed about the coming of the Spirit. He consistently differentiates between himself and the Holy Spirit. He says that the Holy Spirit will come to the disciples. This is very different than him coming to take you to myself. That only leaves one option. The rapture. The taking up of believers who are alive on earth. Now, this is where skeptics say, well, the taking up of living believers into heaven is just too fantastic to believe. And by the way, it doesn't fit my theological system. So this is where the rubber meets the road and we just let the Bible speak for itself. I suppose the Israelites thought the idea of crossing through the Red Sea was a fantasy until they were doing it. And I picture some little boy running and sticking his hand in the wall of water just to see if it was real. Let's see what scripture says. Turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. I've preached this passage a number of times. Always happy to turn back here. It's so encouraging. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. And the Apostle Paul is teaching this very young church. They don't have a lot of knowledge, and so he's trying to help them understand that they haven't missed the coming of the Lord. He says in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, 
will not precede those who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. This passage has stunning parallels to John 14, 1 through 3. John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. John 14, 13, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. John 14, 1, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, rather. John 14, 1, believe in God, believe also in me. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. John 14, 2, if it were not so, would I have told you? 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. John 14, 3, I will come again. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. John 14, 3, I will take you to myself. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, we will be caught up together to meet the Lord. And John 14, 3, that where I am, you may be also. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, so we will always be with the Lord. Never again separated. And again, someone might say, This is just too ridiculous to believe. This is where we face the choice to either believe our theological system or believe at face value what the Bible says. And in fact, we could do something very simple. We could just simply interview some eyewitnesses from the Bible itself. So let's just interview some. Interview number one, we could talk to a guy named Enoch. Enoch is listed in Genesis 5 in the genealogy of Adam and is famous for being the father of Methuselah, who lived a record 969 years. But Genesis 5.24, if we were to ask Enoch what happened to you, he would refer us to this verse. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. It's a Hebrew word which means seized him, snatched him away. This is affirmed in Hebrews 11.5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. We could interview another guy from the Bible, a prophet named Elijah. The older prophet Elijah, the younger prophet Elisha, were talking. 2 Kings 2 verse 11 records, And as they still went on and talked, Behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it. And he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Try to tell Elisha, I don't believe in the rapture. He said, really? I just saw one. We could interview a couple of men, the two evangelists, the coming evangelists of Revelation 11. They will be killed during the Great Tribulation by those who hate Christ and his followers. They'll lay dead in the street in Jerusalem for three and a half days. But Revelation 11, beginning in verse 11, after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. We could do a fourth interview, not with someone who has been raptured, but someone who received divine revelation from God about the rapture, the Apostle Paul. He said in 1 
Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. The twinkling of an eye, it, it means at the same time, at the same moment, those who sleep, the dead in Christ, at the same moment will receive resurrection bodies while those believers who are still alive are changed. And in cross-reference to 1 Thessalonians 4, this can only be the rapture of the church, the taking away of the living church. That's four interviews. That's a pretty airtight case. There's one more guy we could talk to. How about Jesus himself? Jesus, do you think there's a rapture? Acts 1, and when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Ask Jesus, do you believe in the rapture? He'd say, of course I do. I invented it. So we could gather quite a group. Enoch, Elijah, the two witnesses of Revelation 11, the Apostle Paul, Jesus himself. But you know, we could gather an even larger group of witnesses. Enoch didn't just disappear. The Bible records that God took him, meaning that somebody saw him go. There were witnesses. Elisha witnessed Elijah being taken to heaven. The enemies of God witnessed the two evangelists of Revelation 11 being taken up. The disciples of Jesus witnessed Jesus being taken into heaven. And God bless all the movie makers who have pictured the rapture as suddenly people disappearing. The Bible never pictures it that way. The Bible pictures the rapture as an observable event that people watch. So apparently the pattern of raptures all throughout the Bible is that it happens with witnesses. Now, how does this give you hope? You might say, what does hearing about the rapture of the church mean for me? I mean, I'm still going to die. And you already said this passage in John 14 can't be speaking of Christian death. How many of you here are still alive? You might be raptured. You might be. My dad prayed to be raptured. He prayed. He was open about that. He was so certain he was going to be raptured. He was killed in a car accident in 2005. And I'm sure one of his first words in heaven was, well, that didn't work out. (laughs) But as long as you're alive, you have hope. The Apostle Paul, he held out hope that he might be raptured. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That as long as you have breath in your lungs and a beating heart, you might be raptured. And Paul even said, encourage one another with these words. Very often at the end of a Lord's day, we'll say, perhaps this will be our last meeting on this earth. But if you don't make it to the rapture, that's okay too. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that to be away from the body is to be with the Lord instantaneous. Jesus told the repentant criminal on the cross that on that very day they would be together in paradise. Luke 19 depicts the poor believer named Lazarus being carried by the angels at his death. And in Acts 7, Stephen sees Jesus not seated at the right hand of God, but standing to honor 
the entrance of a believer into heaven. Listen, for the Christian, our greatest inspiration, our greatest delight and hope is to see Jesus Christ. Revelation 22.4 tells us that those who have trusted Christ will see his face. What a spectacular vision of the future for the Christian. But I have news for you. Everything that we've talked about all morning long, that's just the waiting room. That's just the, the foyer, the lobby. I've shown you in John 14 that this is referring to the rapture, the resurrection event of the church. There's an immediacy to this. It's during this time that we will enjoy the delights of the Father's house. But he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. It's a word that can mean stopping places or stations. It's temporary. This is only the beginning. Our observation of Scripture from Revelation 19 through 22, Zechariah 14, many parts of Isaiah, numerous other places, shows us that the the rapture, the resurrection, will leave the earth utterly devoid of believers in Christ. And that begins what Jesus calls in Matthew 24, the Great Tribulation. For three and a half years, there will be peace on earth brought about by what Scripture calls the Antichrist. Daniel 9, Revelation 6, the world is saying, ha, now that the Christians are gone, there's peace. But then Antichrist will set himself up in Jerusalem as God to be worshipped. Persecution of Jews will begin horribly. Many, many by the millions will now begin coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ called Tribulation Saints. At this time, God's supernatural judgments will begin raining down on the earth, Revelation 6. All the while, we're in heaven already. At the end of that seven years, Revelation 19.11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Three verses later, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. We know from Revelation that the armies of heaven in fine linen is the church. Revelation 20 reveals that Christ will begin a thousand-year reign on earth with us in our perfected bodies, reigning with him over those who survived the great tribulation. Satan will be judged in finality. All who have ever rejected Christ will be judged in finality. Revelation 20:15. if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. The intermediate heaven was the waiting room. The millennial kingdom was the warm-up. Now we get to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Later in Revelation 21, we get this, this glorious description of New Jerusalem that it radiates like a jewel. It has great, high, massive walls with three gates on every side, hundreds of miles apart. It's laid out like a, a square, the length and the width and the height are equal, about 1,400 miles or so in every direction, basically like going from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico or from Kansas to the Atlantic Ocean, and that distance up as well. This means New Jerusalem will contain, in the vicinity of 2 million square miles, that's on one level, and if we took a wild guess that perhaps each level will be a mile high, that's in the vicinity of 3 billion square miles, If you consider the fact that the total land surface of the earth today is calculated at just over 57 million square miles, that means 
that given an arbitrary guess of one level per mile, that New Jerusalem will have 52 times the land area as Earth does today. And that's just the city. That's not including New Earth. And some say, well, that's just too fantastic to believe. And I say, how boring do you think God is? All you have to do is look up in the daytime and see the sun that God made. The sun could fit 1.3 million Earths into it. The largest known star just in our galaxy, and by the way, there's 100 billion more galaxies that we know of, but the largest star in our galaxy is called a red hypergiant, and it's 2,000 times wider than the sun, and it could hold 2 quadrillion, 759 trillion, 460 billion Earths. So to say New Jerusalem is merely 1,400 miles long, that's nothing. And here's what's so marvelous to think about. The glory that awaits us in heaven as it is right now at this very moment, that's just the lobby. That's just the entrance hall. That's just the foyer. Jesus has secured your reservation in heaven. He delights in your arrival in heaven. And he has arranged transportation to heaven. If, if you have repented of your sin and humbly bent the knee to follow Christ, this is not for everyone. This is only for those who would follow Christ. And if you think on these things, if you ponder them, if you read Scripture, a third of our Bible speaks of these things, that's what's called living a hope-filled life. And we can join the song of King David when he ends his most famous psalm. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, or as Jesus calls it, my Father's house. Our Father, because your house is the house of your Son, because he has claimed it, and because we are in Christ, we too can claim your house. We praise you and thank you that Jesus has promised that in my Father's house are many rooms, and that he has gone to prepare a place for us. Lord, it's our hope, it's our prayer that every person here knows the Lord Jesus. Lord, we would ask you, on behalf of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who has not received Christ, who has not bent the knee in humility to the God who would either be their judge or their savior, we pray that this would be the day. We pray, Lord, that not a single person hearing this message would miss the delights of heaven simply because they could not bend the knee to Christ for one minute. I pray, Lord, that the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit would move in our midst among those who do not know you and that you would save them. And we pray, Lord, for all of us who do know Christ, that you would help us to live lives that are characterized by hope, characterized by triumph, because we live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called because we are looking up. I pray, Lord, we would live looking up in such a way that's pleasing to our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name.